Well, hello there. This is Milena, and welcome to the first episode of Scientific Mavericks podcast, where it is my pleasure to introduce an incredibly talented team of thought leaders and innovators who are at the forefront of reinventing the way retail companies and channels make business decisions today. Hivery is an Australian AI machine learning startup with about 40 employees located around the world, predominantly in Australia, Japan, and the US. Our focus is retail space optimization, effectively optimizing what and how much product is put in vending machines, retail coolers and fridges, supermarket shelves, and as well optimizing promotions running in all of these locations. We call this hyper-local retailing, relevant localization of product mix, space and promotion at physical store level, helping CPG and retailers keep their competitive edge in an era of data, complex rules and AI. To learn more about how Hivery is revolutionizing the retail space, you can always visit our website, hivery.com, and learn about our products, other cool podcasts, and industry awards like Deloitte's Top Fast 50 and Australia Financial Review's Top 100, and more. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Hideaki Yoshimura, the country director in Japan at Hivery. Hidi has been a part of Hivery since the first year of Hivery's inception. Shortly after launching his own advisory business, helping new Japanese businesses to connect with Western companies, he came across Hivery in the Australian Financial Review as an upcoming startup to watch out for. It was just perfect timing when Hide reached out to Jason and Frankie, two of the founders of Hivery, as they have just completed their first business trip to Japan and were seeking help. Internationalizing to Japan at the inception of Hivery has always been a strategic focus. The reason being is Hivery's flagship product in hands, formerly known as Vending Analytics. Japan has one of the most advanced vending markets in the world with a population of 5 million vending machines. And Hivery in hands allows vending operators to enhance their vending machines fleet through superior AI-driven hyperlocal recommendations. So, without further ado, Hiri is going to reflect on Hivery's growth in the last four years and highlight what has remained the same and what has substantially changed over this period of time. What has stayed the same um, throughout our growth is that we've you know, been able to attract some great talent, and that sounds um, a bit cliche, but it's um, pretty true. The team now covers uh, four global regions, um, and we have a blend of data scientists, developers, design experts, you know, marketing, business development executives, and also you know, subject matter experts in the um, fast-moving consumer goods space. And so that you know, never ceases to amaze me about the quality of the people that we're able to attract. And I think it's probably just a reinforcing thing where you know, great teams attract great people. So I think we've been pretty lucky in that regard. Um, And I think we've also been pretty um, deliberate about the type of people we want to uh, work with. So that 
part of the company over the four years that I've been involved hasn't, I don't think has changed. What has changed is um, as we grow and as we scale up, we need to have more structures put into place. And that's just a natural part of uh, a growing business, I think. And I'll give you an example. Um, sales um, and also to a certain extent product development was very experimental in the early days, I think, rather than strategic, uh, especially in Japan where we were you know, exploring what the market needed and what our competitive advantage was and what, what we could bring to the table. But as we continued to talk to our customers and we grew a better sense of what they needed, we, we became more structured about the decisions we made and, and the opportunities we go after. And, you know, there's, there's always a healthy debate around these things um, because we're all passionate about our own ideas. And that's, and that's a good thing, I think. Um, but I think as, um, as we've become bigger, um, and as you know, going to in, into the future where we, we really need to scale up, uh, I think we need to become more disciplined in our approach. Um, and you know, just personally for me, I've I've certainly uh, learned to you know stop the urge to try and do everything to keep the customer happy, <laughs> and you know, be more disciplined about what we're selling uh, and what capabilities that we're selling. So speaking of sales, what was the experience like to get the very first client in Japan? We have um, the vending market. There's probably about ten or fifteen large customers, um, and we've you know pretty much spoken to them all. It was very hard to get the first um, customer in Japan, especially because we didn't have the track record here. So you know, no matter how good your product offering or the results in other markets in in Japan, you're always going to get this uh, question about you know. What about in Japan, you know, or, or because Japan's different, uh, what's your track record here? So that was a, a very difficult obstacle to overcome. But we did overcome this by, you know, fortunately finding a client that was willing to sort of, you know, come along with the ride with us, but then do countless um, proof of concepts or experiments in the market. And we had to validate the feasibility of our solution, um, but also improve the product um, from various angles. So this process has been challenging, uh, to say the least. It's involved a lot of patience on both sides of the fence. Um, but it's also helped us um, gain proper product market fit for the Japanese market. And then now that's helped us to um, you know, set the, set the scene for us to secure our next set of clients. What was the process behind setting up Hybrid Office in Japan from operational standpoint? Initially, it was just myself in Japan, backed by the team in Sydney who would sort of fly in and out of Tokyo for important meetings. You know, as I was mentioning before, we, we really didn't know how the Japanese market was going to react initially, and it was very exper experimental in the early days. But as we started to gain traction, and by that I mean, you know, signed up our first paying customers, that gave us the confidence to say, yep, we're ready to set up um, the Japanese entity, look for office space, um, find good advisors like accountants and lawyers, which is surprising, you know, surprising can be quite difficult, especially in a sort of a bilingual, bicultural sense um, to find those advisors. Um, and then finally hire staff. So now we have a team of four and growing, and we're located in a pretty cool um, co-working space in the heart of Shibuya and which happens to be called The Hive, which is you know, perfect uh, 
aim for a co-working space for us. We're now looking to grow our team. We're looking for you know data, a data analyst um, and also a customer success analyst um, to help support our growing list of clients in Japan. How would you compare the climates in the office in Japan to that of the offices in Australia and the US? I guess given our team in Japan is um, is three quarters Australian, um, if you include me, <laughs> I think the climate is is very similar to what we have in Australia, and and we you know we aim to keep it that way as well. The main difference is obviously our customers um, are in Japan, um, and they they can be very you know demanding uh, when it comes to things like the speed of delivery and and the accuracy and things like that. Japan is. Notorious for you know slow decision making and you know um, and that and that's because they're trying to line everything up uh, to ensure that there's you know the execution is immaculate. So you know the example I always give is the bullet trains um, and they run you know every five minutes and on time all the time. So you know we need our local team to be able to accommodate that, um, accommodate those expectations, or put it in a different way to absorb the impact. Um, between the way we do things in Australia uh, versus the way things are done in Japan, and sometimes this can be a very、um, delicate balancing act. The interesting thing, though, is that as we learn from you know our customers,、um, our customers are always also learning from us. So you know, for example, the clients can ask for all sorts of analysis and enhancements to our product to meet their needs,、um, and sometimes we'll just have to push back. Either because it isn't a strategic priority for us,、um, or we just don't have the resources to deliver、uh, to their expectations.、Um, and you know, me personally, having been raised by you know pretty strict Japanese parents in Australia,、uh, having worked in Japan for a number of years now,、um, was thinking you know the clients were going to get angry and, and walk away, but to our surprise, they didn't.、Um, and I. I put that down to them, in part, them believing that we actually have great potential、uh, in Japan, and we've proven that、um, through our sort of years of engagement here. Also, the Japanese clients become more more open、um, to new ideas from abroad,、uh, and I think especially in this new age of of AI、um, and the the startup culture. So you know, previously it had to be done in a particular way, but now I think、uh, the Japanese customers are warming up to、uh, new ideas and new approaches. So that's、uh, that's beneficial for us. You mentioned that three quarters of the team in Japan is Australian. As a foreigner, how can you learn to navigate successfully and adapt to the Japanese culture that is known for its uniqueness? Perhaps. What subtle nonverbal cues should one look out for and learn how to read? It's not just,、um, I guess,、um, foreign people coming to Japan and doing business. I think even in Japan, it's quite challenging to sort of read verbal cues, right? Everyone's, you know, Japanese people. There's a lot of different personalities, and it's very hard to know what someone's thinking. The only thing I would say is it's probably not as obvious as looking for a nonverbal cue. It's not like For okay, he's not talking, or he's you know, he's、uh, closing his eyes, or anything like that. It's more about anticipating what they're thinking, you know, and and by that I mean sort of understanding the culture in its、um, broader context. Just say、uh, the Japanese people hate to be late because、uh, they think it's stealing someone else's time, or they don't like to 
bother the next person. Um, you know, just say on the trains, you're not allowed to speak on your on your phone because the next person might want to be, you know, might be sleeping or something like that. So you don't want to disturb the next person. There's a concept of that. So if you think that that's the cultural norm, then you you're going to anticipate what they're thinking and therefore adjust your behavior and, and you know make sure that what you're saying what you're doing isn't disrupting that um, without them having to either verbally say it or, or, or you know make it obvious in a non-verbal sense so yeah I think if you come in come to the Japanese market thinking okay I'm going to look out for this particular body language or that you'll probably miss a lot of the underlying concepts or, or the, the, the thoughts of a broader um, cultural, cultural setting. Um, so, yeah, that's what I would say. I would, I would say to try and understand the culture and anticipate rather than, and, you know, for obvious signs. Yeah. I, I think once the obvious signs are there, it's probably a little bit too late. <laughs> From what I heard in your answer, the Japanese culture is built on mutual respect, essentially. You take into account another person before you make a decision. Could you elaborate how this concept is applied in the business context? Yeah, I think it, it, it does relate to, to the business sense because if you think about it, the, the Japanese are you know, known for, to be notorious for uh, slow decision-making and things like that, but it's because they're trying to understand uh, the impact uh, of a decision they're making downstream and to sort of um, have a, make sure in, in the sort of holistic sense that it makes sense um, before they commit. Um, but once they do, um, because everybody's on board, things need to move very quickly. So it's, it's a bit of a, um, you know, we say that the Japanese expect speed and quality and some, some people will say, well, they're you know, slow in decision making, but it's, a, it's, it's the slow, slowness is in um, coordinating and making a decision, but the speed comes after they've made that decision. So, yeah, that, that extrapolates um, well in that, in that sort of business sense as well. Mm -hmm. What would you say has been the biggest challenge in setting up operations in Japan? Yeah, the biggest challenge um, has been hiring good people. Um, you know, given our business is, is global, um, we need our team in Japan to be, you know, first and foremost bilingual, I guess, and also bicultural. We, we touched on that uh, earlier. And, you know, the technical skills that we need here, um, it's just a, a narrow, um, narrow talent pool uh, for, the, for the type of people we're looking for. We've been f quite fortunate. We've had Ben, Ben Henschke, um, who is one of the first hires uh, outside the founders at Hivery, uh, who is fluent in Japanese and also just happens to be a brilliant um, data scientist. Um, so he has been engaged with the Japan projects from day one. Um, and relocated to Tokyo, I think about a year and a half ago now, uh, to help build the technical team here uh, and to be close to our clients. So we've been uh, fortunate to have been, um, but we've also been fortunate to hire some uh, new team members. Um, we've just had two people join uh, recently with the skills and the cultural fit uh, that we've been looking for. So, yeah, I mean, it's taken a while, um, but we want to get that right, uh, especially the core team. Um, and as we grow um, in terms of our, um, you know, the skills and, the, and, the, and the, level, uh, the, the quality of the people and the cultural fit, uh, we want to make sure we get that right uh, as, we, as we scale. Um, and, you know, now um, our, our karaoke sessions that we have are a little bit more, uh, a little bit more fun now. <laughs> 
I can imagine karaoke sessions are more fun now that they're no longer solo or duet. Apart from the size of the Japanese vending market, what are some other big opportunities that allowed Hyvory to establish its presence and really solidify it in the Japanese market? Mm. Yeah, definitely um, the biggest opportunity and the biggest priority uh, for for Japan is is the vending uh, business. Um, so you know we've I think we've got good a good product market fit, a superior product in the market, and we'll uh, continue to capitalize on that opportunity uh, in the coming months and years ahead. There's also a big opportunity with our next suite of products, um, which is to make. Um, location-specific recommendations to optimize um, supermarket shelves. Um, and we've been experimenting in the Japanese market for a number of years now. And as you know, there's, um, or you know, anyone that's visited Japan, there's a lot of um, supermarkets, there's a lot of convenience stores here. So that is definitely a next, uh, a, a big opportunity that we have ahead of us. It'll probably go through a similar experimental phase where we're learning what the Japanese market needs in terms of not just features, but the quality of, of the recommendations. But we've already um, proven that in the vending space. Um, so I think we're, we're in a good spot uh, for, for our next suite of products. The other opportunity I would say is um, given the Japanese market is um, very demanding, uh, especially in regards to things like accuracy, um, th this has challenged us um, to find new ways to improve our, especially our algorithms. And, you know, this is something our data scientists, they thrive on that sort of stuff. Um, and they have met this uh, head on. And as a result, um, we've improved our um, algorithms and our products, uh, which are now being received very well in the Japanese market. But we're also finding that they're being received outside the Japanese market, like in the US. So, you know, I think we've improved um, the product um, to meet the Japanese needs, but it's, it's proving to be useful outside of Japan as well. And I think um, there'll be more examples, um, more of, of these kind of examples um, in our upcoming um, suite of products uh, as we develop them for the Japanese market. What is Hyvory's approach to personalization of its products for specific clients? In other words, does a personalized set of functionalities often become the core functionalities of a product? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, this is the, um, the big question, right? In terms of how do you find um, product market fit uh, in, a, in a market? Because if you try to please one client, you might be missing a lot of opportunities for the entire market. With the, uh, the vending uh, approach, because we've pretty much engaged the entire uh, vending market or the the, the, the core customers uh, in, in Japan, we hear um, common themes that, that come up in these meetings. And through that, we can identify, you know, this is noise or this is, these are things that we need to really um, nail to be, um, to have that product market fit for the Japanese market. So I think by talking and, and discussing with, you know, various clients, you're able to sort of discern what's important versus what's not. And we you know, need to make deliberate decisions about what not to do as well as what we do. Um, yeah. How do you make a decision to walk away from a potential client? I don't like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
for me, you know, I always see business, there is always an opportunity somewhere, even if, you know, immediately we might not be able to meet their needs today. Um, I always try to keep the door open, open for another, another day. Um, because I just think that that's the nature of, of business and how markets change. So, you know, even if we do need to say no to a certain thing and that doesn't meet the requirements, um, you know, for them right now, yeah, we, 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 we always, you know, have to be in a position where we can revisit them. Their priorities might change. Organisations do change. Uh, and, and we've actually found that uh, through our sort of engagements here in Japan uh, in, the, in the vending space. Um, you know, client was, was mentioning that their priority was A and they were pretty adamant about that. And then and we were asking, you know, don't you actually need B first? Um, and they've actually, they've actually come around, you know, full circle. So walk away. I don't tend to walk away. I just say, okay, let's uh, let's discuss this. Let's pick this up uh, on, a, on another day. <laughs> That's how I like to leave it. <laughs> That's fair. To finish our conversation today, Hiri, could you summarize what was the main strategy that Hivery utilized in order to solidify its presence in Japan? And what strategies do you foresee to come as Hivery grows its operations in the coming years? Yeah, I think um, yeah, the main strategy has to be to you know to find that first you know anchor client you know who's who's willing to come along for the ride, and it's you know been a challenge. Um, but we've been quite fortunate um, with that. Um, and then once you've built that track record, um, the market will now you know, start to believe that what you, you, know, you have what it takes to succeed in Japan. Um, and then it just um, snowballs from there. So we'll be taking the same approach for our new products, um, making sure that we, you know, we, I guess we, you know, because we're based in Australia and, you know, our biggest market is in the US, we'll develop the product for those markets, but um, do enough um, exploration and experiments to um, get the product um, fit for the Japanese market and prove it with one customer. Uh, and then, um, you know, keep the other customers in, in the rate on the radar and approach them again um, when you're when you're ready with a with a um, with a product. So that's um, that's uh, how we do it. And you know now that we've got um, a solid team uh, in Japan um, and we're and we're growing that team, uh, I think we're 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 poised to sort of um, you know capitalize on that opportunity. To get a more well-rounded perspective on taking Hivery and AI to Japan. I encourage you to listen to Ben Henschke's episode. As Hiri mentioned, the two of them have been an incredible duet not only in an attempt to scale Hivery operations in Japan, but also for karaoke sessions. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Stay tuned and till the next time everyone.